My name is Bernstein. I'm an alcoholic. Uh, it's good to be here. Um, appreciate the people who asked me to be here. Uh, I normally don't get nervous, and I'm really not today, but I'm kind of keyed up. And, and when I get keyed up, and I, I very rarely speak on Sunday morning anymore, and, and there's probably a good reason for that because in the morning my mind is real bright and alert, and that's not good. <laughs> that is not good. Because when my mind's bright and alert, I go places that are kind of weird, and I just kind of drag people along with me. So it'll be kind of interesting to see see how things go this morning. Um, I really want to thank everyone for asking me and getting to know the people. I want to talk a minute about the speakers. Uh, I really appreciate the speakers that are here. Uh, I stand on the shoulders of giants, and uh, there's no question about that. And there will be times when people will stand on my shoulders, and they will stand on the shoulder of a giant. That's what this program does, is it generates giants. And um, we may not be perfect, and we've come to know that that's not the deal. We didn't come to this program to get perfect. We came into this program to deal with the fact that we'll never be perfect. And I've seen these giants, and they have meant so much to me. Uh, Don, of course, I don't know that well. I've gotten to know him more in the last five to seven years and, than I ever did. And, and he's one of those people that is a walking history book, and it's worth listening to. Uh, even if you don't agree with everything he says, what you do see is the passion. And anyone who stays in this program has to have the passion. Uh, it's got to be fascinating. I remember an old Charlie R., who's now dead in Louisville, used to say, Barnes, he always talked like he had a mouth full of mush and a head full of Valium. He, he said to me, Barnes, you find this program fascinating? That's during the first five years. He knew I was walking on a, a grenade just about every step I took. He'd say, you find this program fascinating? I'd say, yeah, Charlie, I really do. He said, that's good, because them that don't find it fascinating seem to get drunk a lot. And I do find it fascinating. And I find it fascinating because of the history in various parts. Uh, I didn't get in here till, till uh, Saturday morning, or Saturday about noon, Friday night. I had this whole program of recovery for me has been a program of priorities. And... Uh, Sometimes we just have to do, it's interesting, that's nothing original with me. It comes out of the mottos, which I'm sure you've heard. If you haven't, you need to read another chapter in the big book. But the mottos say basically, first things first. Uh, and I had to make those decisions. And when I got in here, uh, those giants that I'm on the shoulders of, uh, uh, Dick and Marlene and those people, I mean, they were very courteous. And, and, and Bob and, and, and Camille came up and they were courteous. And then... Bob W. came up, and then here came his spouse, Juanita. And, what, and Juanita says to me, should we genuflect? She says, you've just flown in here, going to talk, and fly out. Now, the reason I tell you that story is because I just lost it. I thought it was one of the funniest things I'd ever heard. What these two people need for me to say today is that Bob and Juanita Wessel are two of my great heroes. They will always be two of my great heroes because in Bob I've found someone who is probably the most gentle man I've ever met in my life. It does not mean he's simple. It means he's gentle. Now, these are people from my community. If you know in your community, when you come into your community to recover, you pick those people they tell us to pick, the winners. And these people have always been winners to me and they always will be. And they know that in my life and they know that in my heart. And for me not to, to say that would be to be remiss in letting us know about the shoulders of giants we stand on and the example we give to those people who may be always looking at us in our community. 
and we are the examples of AA, and boy, they were beautiful examples to me, and always have been, and I love you very much. When I talked here, we haven't figured out when. It was either somewhere between 6 and 15 years ago. <laughs> and in AA, and in, you know, and that's close enough. I mean, that's about as good as we get. And I remember I talked on Friday night, and Jim Williams talked on uh, at, at 7, and I talked at 9. And I swear I can't get this room straight in my mind, but I was sitting over on this side, and I remember, and these tables could not have been here. Because Jimmy sat there, and he got ready to talk, and he and I just met, and I was sitting right there, and he walked over to the side like this. And he had on one of these, and I'm a Baptist, or was a Baptist, raised a Baptist, so invites a Baptist. This is not a disparaging comment. But he had on one of those white Baptist preaching suits, you know. And he stepped out there, and he said, how do I look, Burns? Just like that. And I remember thinking, he looks wonderful, you know. Well, well Jim's dead. And Jim was one of those people from afar, like Don, and, and frankly, like... like uh, like Dick and Marlene, that are, are the shoulders of those giants I'm talking about. And sitting here, I remember him very well. And I miss him. Those of you that I'm seeing again for uh, another time, I've noticed how old y'all are getting. <laughs> and it's not happening to me, but I'm really sorry it's happening to y'all. And it reminds me of a great story that, that is now a very personal personal story. It used to be a joke. Now it's a personal story. This old fellow was hard hearing, and he had to go in and see the doctor. So his wife went with him so she could tell the doctor what he was saying, or what the doctor was saying back to, the, to, to her husband. So they go in there, and they, the doctor comes in. He said, Mr. Smith, what's wrong with you? And he said, Doctor, what, or, what did he say? He said, he says, what's wrong with you, honey? He said, well, doctor, I've got uh, this problem with my bowels. And I got this problem with my bladder. And I got this problem with my sex life. And he says, well, Mr. Mr. Smith, we're going to have to get a specimen. He said, what did he say? He said, he says he wants your shorts. Herb, you shouldn't be laughing, except it's a great story, isn't it? <laughs> I watch it. Those of us who are getting older, it kind of takes a while for it to seep in. And go, ah, 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 ah. The young ones are saying, I don't get it, you know, but that's okay. You've asked me to come tell you a story. That story is what I was like, what happened, and what I'm like today. Uh, this is a story which is just told to this day because it's a story which is in constant evolution, at least in my life. It's a story about plateaus of surrender because that's what this story is all about and it's what my recovery has been about, that walking along or sliding along, just finding, boom, life happens. Then we go up the steps and another plateau and we go along, boom, then life happens. And we go on up the steps and, and level off, and boom, life happens. And that's, and that's the way this recovery is all about. Perhaps the difference in, for me today is I... And the best manifestation of what this program's done for me is I look forward to each day most of the time with anticipation rather than with entrenched, with entrenched dread. And I can remember when I first came in this program, I didn't have a clue what was happening. I knew I had to stay sober, but life was too big for me, and I just absolutely huddled down in the bunker for that day of living. 
And finally, by the grace of God, exhibited through the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and all you people who were my, who were my heroes, and finally getting into the steps and the whole deal, I now find life exciting. That doesn't mean it's always exciting. doesn't mean there are times there aren't fear. But it means now I look forward to it, to dealing and to living in life. This is a story uh, which may not be your story, but if it didn't, keep coming back. If you need to be here as bad as I do, you'll hear your story. It's a story where they'll be preaching and teaching. And that's okay, because if there hadn't been preachers or teachers in my life, I wouldn't be here today. The problem with those of us who become preachers and teachers is that's okay so long as we remain students. And I will tell you that I am more fascinated by being a student in this program today than I've ever been in my life. But I was born and raised Baptist, and I went to church for 12 years. I had a string of medals down my chest, and I picked up that delivery system. And, yeah, I preach and teach at times, but it's because I have a passion for this program. And it's because if there weren't preachers and teachers in my life, I would not be alive. But praise God, I remain a student. I was born and raised in a little town in western Kentucky named Mayfield. I was born in a home where there was no alcohol and there were no drugs. My grandfather died drinking lye water in the Mayfield City Jail in 1935. He was a bad alcoholic. My mother was molested physically, emotionally, and sexually in that home. She was what we know today as an adult child of an alcoholic. And if you have a problem with that concept, then just go read the chapter of the family afterward, because when it starts off, it says, if you're around one of us, you become neurotic. And my mother was neurotic. My mother's one of the finest people I've ever known in my life, and she died in 1978, and I miss her more today than I've ever missed her in my life. And I've missed her ever since the day she left. But my mother was neurotic. I didn't know the word neurotic, so I just called Mama Goofy. And Mother was Goofy. But boy, did she love me. Boy, did she love me. Uh, my mother was uh, scarred. She used to see my granddaddy when, when they had an interesting way of treating alcoholics in Mayfield at the time. When my da- granddaddy get drunk, they'd put him in jail. When he'd sober up, they'd put him in a chain gang sweeping the Mayfield city streets. And my mother used to walk past her daddy at least once a week in good weather in a chain gang sweeping the Mayfield city streets. Now, this is in Mayfield, Kentucky, the, the Bible Belt in the middle 30s. My mother, the scarlet letter on my mother, A, was not for adultery. It was for alcoholism. And she dragged that whole thing into our house, which is not unusual. I first experienced from my mother conditional love. And that was when I was perfect. My mother absolutely patted my little butt, parted my little hair, and made me king baby. And I still have to deal with that king baby stuff that started way back then. But my mother was the first person that I got conditional love from. My, uh, the church was the second place that I got conditional love from. Now, if you think I'm against the church, you're wrong. First seven years of my recovery, I was a lay reader and administered the chalice and the host in the Episcopal Church, which is where I belong today. And I still go to church regularly. So nothing here is against the church. But the church, it's not my perception. They taught me conditional love. And they told me if I was perfect, I would go to heaven. If I wasn't, I'd fry in hell. And that's exactly what they said. They said, it's better to spill your seeds in the belly of a whore than on the ground. And hell, I'm 12 years old, and I got 25 cents a week uh, uh, allowance. Where am I going to find a whore to start with for 25 cents a week? And the second thing is I found me a pull toy, and I'm up to my butt and alligators about that time, you know? (laughs) 
And every Saturday night, I would sit there and play with my newfound toy, and on Sunday, I'd go in and confess, and they'd baptize me again. And I'm grateful they did, because they taught me a decent set of values. Some of it was weird, but it was a decent set of values. So I grew up in this ambiance of conditional love, be perfect or get punished. Because when I wasn't perfect, my mother wouldn't even talk to me. My daddy had to fix my breakfast and whatnot. And I don't mean perfect being a B rather than an A. So I grew up in this conditional love. Now I need to tell you real quick, that's not what makes me an alcoholic. For the last 17 years, I'm a doctor for those of you who don't know it, and I practiced medicine for 25 years. That was from 1969, 1967, 1992. Then I changed to another job. But since 1987, I've spent most of my career studying our disease, which does nothing but enhance the physical allergy and mental obsession. I can put every one of the formulas up here on the wall to show you our physical allergy and mental obsession. And the reason I'm an alcoholic is because I'm bodily and mentally different from normal people. Now, I'm not bodily and mentally different from this outfit. <laughs> but there's a, this is a tilted segment. You know, this is, this is a database that is tilted. But I am bodily and mentally different from my fellows. And today, we, are, we can put names to that. I will never be able to drink successfully or take mood-altering drugs successfully. And that's due to the brain chemistry I've got. It's due to all the things that I cannot control. Alcoholism is a disease of brain chemistry and old tapes. Brain chemistry and old tapes. And those old tapes started on me back when I was a child. That is the thinking that I must deal with. This is a disease of drinking and thinking. Stop the drinking and don't deal with the thinking. We'll go back to the drinking. If you don't believe it, go look at the fifth chapter, fourth step. We go back through our lives. Nothing counts but thoroughness and honesty. We are invited, compelled, admonished to go back through our lives and look at the thinking, and that's where my thinking started. That's where my lack of trust started. When I walked in this program, I had nowhere else to go, but I still didn't trust you. If you'd asked me if I did, I'd have said yes, but no, I didn't. No, I didn't. I had to watch you, and you had to show me you were flat but serious. Some of them did and some of them didn't. I went with the ones who did and I didn't stay with the ones who didn't. Find the winners. But I walked in here with no trust. It started way back then. Dealing with conditional love. Dealing with these things. And the people who don't deal with them will essentially go back to drinking or they'll become burned out old bleeding deacons and they are worth, not worth a damn to listen to. You know, like... Come in there, oh God, I, I hear what, I remember one 30 years sobriety, one time in Louisville said, oh God, I've never done a four-step, and I've been sober 30 years, and that's what I think about it by God, and that's what I'll tell you. And I think, man, he's got everything I want right in one little capsule. That's exactly what I want is that attitude, that attitude, and that message. I mean, I'm per perfectly happy for him to have that message as long as he keeps it at home. Because the real issue here is not all about me and you. It's about getting prepared to be ready for him. And getting ready to be prepared, prepared to be ready for her. That's what we're here for. And if I'm sitting there screaming at her that she doesn't have to do a four-step because I didn't, what have I done? I've carried the disease, not the solution. And that's exactly what it was. 
Uh, I grew up in that home. It was a good home. I wouldn't have changed it for anything then. I wouldn't today. It was full of a lot of love. It was full of a lot of craziness. But in those 25 years of practicing medicine, I found that most homes are crazy, alcoholic or not. Most homes are just crazy because whatever's good enough for bull moose is good enough for the country, and we're learning tapes over and over that are, that are twisted tapes on how to deal with life. Alcohol and drugs were not a problem for me in high school. I would drink occasionally. I was probably Jack Armstrong, the All-American boy. I mean, I, was, I could give you my resume, and it was, it, was, it was really a perfect resume. And I was happy. And every time I drank a bottle of beer, which might be once every six months to a year, then I'd get with those guys that we'd go over to Fulton, because Mayfield was dry, and get us a six-pack of country club malt liquor. And each of us would have one of them, or about six of us there. We'd have one can of beer, and then we'd sing gospel songs and go home and play Monopoly. That's what we did. It was a great life. <laughs> You sang gospel songs in western Kentucky. That's what you did. And we, we, we thought we were good, probably just like anybody else drinking a can of beer. We were off key, but we had a good time doing it. Alcohol and drugs were no problem for me in college. Uh, when I got to college, I was the first Brady who had ever gone to college, and I didn't have any reference point about what fraternities did. and I didn't really know how to take care of myself because Mother had taken care of me. Uh, one of the great messages that I guess we ought to leave with each other is to make sure that we leave our kids responsible in a loving fashion because my mother and daddy loved me and loved me more than life itself. And they tried to give me things they never had because they didn't have much. So they wanted me to go to college, and I did, but they didn't know how to tell me to be prepared for college. I remember when I got out of the car at college and daddy was, mother was getting ready to leave, I said, Daddy, how much money can I spend? He said, spend what you need and don't spend what you don't need. That's us terrible thing to tell a kid at that age what the hell does that mean you know but they thought they were doing exactly the right thing and god love them they just didn't know what to do so i didn't know how to deal with college and and uh, first semester of my freshman year i'd study monday through friday i was a good student i'd uh, really really uh, responsible about studying then on saturday night i'd go to the fraternity house we'd all drink six or seven beers and i went to a college where the women's campus is on one side of town and the men's was on the other side of town so we'd go over there and get in the fraternity house and drink six or seven beers, get all lathered up, get on the back of a flatbed truck, and go over to the women's campus to sing to the girls, to serenade them. We'd get out there and just sing up a storm. And I'd take off all my clothes and get naked. And I'd be standing there just singing up a storm. <laughs> yeah, I was the only one who got naked, you know. I like to say for comic relief that nobody sent me flowers, nobody sent me a card, nobody called me for a date. But I'll tell you what, I'll tell you who did notice, the dean noticed. <laughs> So the dean calls me in. He said, Burns, you're a great student and a lovely young man, but said, when you drink, you don't act right. Why, why don't you quit drinking? I thought, I think, he, I think he's right. So I quit drinking. I quit getting naked, and everybody had a good deal, and I went ahead and graduated from college. Then I went to medical school in 1958, University of Louisville. Now, this is part of my story some people have problems with, but it really is their problem because I've studied this extensively, talked to my sponsor, talked to other people, read the book, and this part of my story has to do with drugs. Now, I'm a card-carrying, commode-hugging, quarter-whiskey-a-night, 12-gauge shotgun in the mouth, drunk. And clean it up, call me an alcoholic if you want to, but that's what I am. And the big book tells me that my greatest asset is my experience. Again, family afterward. And my experience has been my life. And as Jim said yesterday, for me to renege on that experience is to deny the very power that I've been given in this life to be of service in God's army in AA. It's my experience. And this part of my life has to do with drugs. 
And I'm very sure of exactly why it does, because it gives me a story to tell some little pitcher out there with big ears who hadn't got it yet what this is all about. At least in my life, which is pretty close to exactly the textbook that this book is teaching about, is me and my family. I started medical school in 58. I uh, started taking amphetamine to study. I didn't even know what amphetamine was. had never heard of it. Did not take it for a kick. I took it to study. Everybody else took it to study. I was hooked on it within a, very, a matter of a very few weeks, and I took it daily for the next four years. Two weeks before graduation, my senior year, I was kicked out of medical school. In an amphetamine rage, I beat up one of my medicine professors. They took me to the department, head of department of psychiatry and the dean, and they sent me down, and Dr. Keller, who was the head of the department of psychiatry, said, Burns, what's wrong with you? I said, Dr. Keller, I take too many drugs. He said, do you believe that? And I said, yes, sir, I do. And he said, we can help you. And I said, what are you going to do? He said, we're going to put you in intensive psychiatric therapy. And they put me in state-of-the-art psychiatric therapy for the next year and a half. I tried. The psychiatrist tried. I didn't take any drugs. I didn't drink at that time. Psychiatry helped me. Psychiatry taught me about feelings, about anger being a secondary feeling to resentment or fear. They taught me a lot of things that were going to hold me in good stead when I got to you. And I was all, I mean, they taught me wonderful. They taught me some crap, too. They taught me I, I wanted to sleep with my mother. They taught me that I wanted... They I remember that when he said that, he said, have you ever lusted after your mother? And I thought, wow, have I ever lusted after my mother? <laughs> Woo, no, I saw her one time in the bathtub and it scared me to death. <laughs> you got to be kidding, you know? I mean, I'm still having trouble dealing with the pool toy, and you going to put that on me, for God's sake? <laughs> yeah, and they told me I hated my brother, and that's about half true. And... and uh, who's in AA for 15 years now, we're great friends, uh, told me I didn't, you know, I wanted a blue, blue tricycle rather than red, a whole bunch of stuff that didn't make any sense, didn't make any sense then, doesn't make any sense today. But they taught me a whole bunch of stuff that did make sense. So I came back into medical school to restart my freshman year and start it over. I walked in that medical school ready to go. I'd reviewed all of my notes. I'd read all my books again. I was clean of drugs and ready to go. Walked in that medical school, and within less than an hour, I was strung out on amphetamine. I didn't even think about it walking. Didn't even think about it walking in that door. But the minute I walked in that door, it was almost like a robot. We kept a whole stack of amphetamine in the OBGYN clinic. The treatment at that time for women who gained weight was give them amphetamine to stop their appetite, give them a diuretic to get rid of the fluid, give them a low salt diet so they wouldn't gain weight. And so I knew exactly where it was. Didn't even think about it. Just walked right down there and got it and sat there like that first drink when we don't deal with all the feelings around fear and all the other stuff. And I walked right in there and got that amphetamine, took it, sat on the steps of the medical school and cried because I didn't know what was wrong with me. Now, you know what was wrong with me, and if you don't, I'll remind you of it. What psychiatry didn't bring me was a spiritual solution. They brought me knowledge. They brought me knowledge. And our book says clearly, knowledge alone won't do it. Now, if you're in this program, you have to make a decision. Do you believe it will? Let me tell you from my experience, it ain't going to cut it. Because I've got all kinds of degrees and all kinds of knowledge, and I know this disease backwards and forwards. But knowledge won't keep me off of drinking because it won't help me deal effectively with the feelings around my disease. But you can, these steps can, leading me to God so that God can.
And if you're an alcoholic of my type and believe just learning all about this and just learning the big book, no, no, no. We learn the big book to use it as a tool. Somebody said, do you, uh, uh, do, you stu- do you work the program or do you apply the program? I work the hell out of the program so I can apply it. I work the hell out of the program so I can apply it. I get up in the morning and do the morning drill so when the day comes along and it hits me, I'm sitting there and I've practiced, I've run the plays, I've prayed, I'm ready, I'm in a spiritual condition so that that thing in the front of me doesn't eat my lunch. Doesn't eat my lunch. They didn't bring me the spiritual solution. Classmates enabled me that year. Uh, graduated in 1964. Went into my internship. I was... And residency for the next two years, I was in Our Lady of Peace, a mental hospital in Louisville, four times, strapped down, IV fluids, straight jackets, padded cells. I might stay off amphetamine six hours, six days, six weeks, six months. Always went back, always put me in mental hospital. We didn't know that speed drugs were progressive then or had tolerance, but it certainly did, and today we know it, and it just would tear me apart. In 1967, I uh, uh, got out of my residency. I was in... Uh, Family practice on amphetamine. Went into the hospital one day to make rounds. All my friends were in there. The Vietnam War was raging. And I just sat there cutting down. I hate this war. Either win it or get the hell out. This is not the Blah, blah, blah. All the stuff went. Finally, somebody said, we're tired of listening to you shoot this crap. If you don't like it, join. And I said, by God, that's a good idea. And I went out and got in my car, and I drove to Frankfurt and joined the Army. Didn't call my wife. Didn't call my office. Just went and joined the Army. You know, I mean, there's, there's a reason why I still go to four AA meetings a week because that's the way my life is today. If it smells good or drives fast, jump it. You know, that's the way I feel. I mean, they say I've got an impulse disorder. Well, hell yes, I'm an alcoholic. We've all got impulse disorders. I mean, just just look at your life. You're walking along. I think I'll do that. You know, there you are. And it, 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 and the only thing that's better about it today is I've only got about two inches of chain. They took the rope away because I kept trying to hang myself, you know. <laughs> Went in the Army, still taking amphetamine. Post commander came down and said, Burns, if you don't quit taking amphetamine, we'll put you in Leavenworth. So I quit. Once he explained it to me, I quit, you know. <laughs> uh, and and that's, that, that's an interesting thing because my... History of 12 years of amphetamine with no alcohol and eight years of alcohol with no amphetamines, it, it, it gives me a, 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 almost a unique flavor to my story. And my period of time with drugs was if you showed me the consequences, I could always quit. And I dealt with, I do the addiction work for a men and women's homeless shelter in Mayfield, in, Mayfield, in Louisville, and uh, we sleep 300 men and women a night. We've uh, got 150 in a year-long program of recovery, reading the big book all day, uh, going to meetings all night, doing group conscience. And uh, so I've treated thousands of, a- of addicts and alcoholics. I run the Impaired Physicians Program for the state of Kentucky. So I've treated hundreds of physicians. And I go to four AA meetings a week, so I've dealt with all of y'all for 24 years. And so if I haven't seen it and haven't done it, it probably hadn't happened. And I can tell you as a general statement, drug addicts, given the consequences, can quit. Now, I know there's one or two of its exceptions. Don't come around here and say, oh, I don't believe that shit, because if you're going to tell me that, then I'm going to tell you you're the exception, so go out and shoot yourself because you're unique. <laughs> Damn, that ice went down sideways. That's cold. 
But I could always quit. Now, when I was drinking, at the end of my drinking, I could not quit. The consequences meant nothing. I could not quit. You want me to give you an explanation? Meet me after this, and I'll try to give it to you. But the fact is, my experience is, I could quit if you ruled out, rolled out the consequences when I was drugging. And every drug addict I've seen, with rare exception, can do it. And I've treated zillions of alcoholics who reach that point. They cannot quit. And I could not quit. Um, I quit taking amphetamine for a year. Last year in the Army, came home in 1969, started my practice again, got right back on amphetamine, had a gallbladder attack. They attributed partly to the amphetamine, took me to the hospital. A good friend of mine who's my, my, is still a good friend of mine and a surgeon took out my gallbladder. A good friend of mine who's still a good friend of mine and is still my internist. The three of us sat in Methodist Hospital in Louisville, Kentucky in 1969 and held hands and prayed that I would not take any more amphetamine. And that was my last amphetamine. And I'm absolutely certain the prayers had a lot to do with it. But let me tell you what I know for sure had a lot to do with it was I started drinking. I did not drink before that. The first four years of my drinking was not alcoholic. I didn't try to control my drinking. I didn't try to cut back on my drinking. I drank when I drank. I didn't drink when I didn't drink, and I never was obsessed with it. I might have drunk a ton and got drunk a lot, but it never was my thought of the day or any time during the day to drink or not drink. Then I went into three years of alcoholic drinking. I didn't drink anymore. I didn't get drunk anymore, but every morning my first thought, virtually my first thought on awakening was when my first drink would be and it'd be at 4.30. Now I had one of the biggest practices in the city of Louisville. I had a very successful practice. I was in no professional problems and I was a decent doctor. I don't know if I was great, but I wasn't bad, but I was certainly decent. But when I got up in the morning, I knew my first drink would be at 4.30. When I finished at 4 o'clock, I walked right across the street. If we had my partner, if we had other patients in there, my partner would take care of those patients because I was going to go across at 4.30 and get me a quart of beer over at that 7-Eleven right across from my office there at Dixie and Merriman. I'd get that quart of beer, put it between my legs, drive 25 miles home, drink that beer. As soon as I got home, I went in and got my drink of choice, which was scotch and water. And I drank that scotch and water and got smooth. Y'all remember smooth? <laughs> Hell yes, every one of you remembers smooth. <laughs> That's why you keep coming to meetings. And if you want to know why you keep coming to meetings, I can give you a lot of reasons. But one is so you remember past smooth. <laughs> so you remember past smooth. Book says there will come a day and we'll be unable to bring into our conscious memory with sufficient force. The humiliation of a week or a month ago, we are defenseless. Paraphrase, but right in there is a solution. We forget. Medical science says this is state conditioned learning. And there's no question that it is. But at the same time, for me in this program, I've come to know that God's second greatest gift was giving me a memory block so I couldn't remember all the pain. His greatest gift was giving me a program where I could come in and remember every bit of it and a solution to deal with it. Because anybody still living in shame today is still living outside of God's house. That doesn't mean you won't have shame. It doesn't mean if you got a conscience, and those of us who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with ourselves, virtually none of us in this room are that way. Those are the so-called sociopaths. They have no conscience. We're here because we have a conscience. And if we're still playing the self-centered deal of dealing with our own conscience, then we're going to feel shame. 
But I will promise you in this journey, I can't tell you when. It might be one week. It might be ten years walking through this program. There will, not, there will be a day when there is no shame because we've dealt with it. That's the greatest gift God has ever given me. Not have to live with that. Last year, my drinking, I drank addictively. And uh, I drank a quart of whiskey a night. Told myself I wasn't an alcoholic because I never drank in my office. My first wife had kicked me out of the house in 1975. That was a marriage that was born in hell, but it was necessary to be there. She was a mean woman then. She was a mean woman when we were married, and she's a mean woman today. She hated my guts when we got married, and she's always hated my guts. Now, I, I wasn't a mean person. I was just goofy. I was confused. I didn't know what the hell was going on, you know. And so we got married, and then we spent 17 years trying to make chicken salad out of chicken crap, and it just wasn't going to work, you know. <laughs> I mean, that's the way it was. I mean, all the therapy in the world, all the religion in the world, nothing was going to make that relationship work. And Marlene's talk was magnificent, talking about how we repeat the patterns. We repeat the patterns. So I finally shamed her enough, drinking enough, that she kicked me out. And I womanized and ran for about a year and a half and met my current wife, who is one of the neatest people I've ever met in my life. And, uh, and the people from Louisville know her. Camille knows her very well. And uh, she's just one of the neatest people I've ever known in my life. Uh, her daddy was a bipolar, and her, she watched her mother take care of her daddy. And so she took care of me. And I wanted to take care of her, and we had a very sick relationship, but it was very loving and very supportive. Uh, to give you an idea, I used to uh, uh, wanted her to have the best clothes money could buy, and uh, so I always bought them and sent them to her. Uh, didn't ask her what she wanted, I just sent them. I wanted her to have nice cars, and every two years I bought her one, didn't ask her what kind she wanted, just had it delivered. I wanted her to have great vacations, and we had great vacations. I picked them, didn't ask her where she wanted to go. We had great sex. We must have had great sex because I did it the way I wanted to do it, you know, so it must have been great sex. I didn't know what this was all about, but that was the relationship. I took care of her, and she took care of me. We drank together, drink for drink. She's 14 years younger than me, and that was great when I was 40, and she was 25. Now that I'm 65, and she's 52. It's a little bit of a task every now and then, but with a lot of prayer and communication, we're able to pull it off. Takes weird, takes weird music, nice movies, and a whole, whole bunch of dinner, but it worked. And don't tell me you don't know what I'm talking about. I don't care how old you are, I mean, for God's sake. Let's be honest, this program, and some of you are out there lying right now. I can look at you and see. But in any event, uh, uh, we had a great time, and then I, I got really sick. Uh, I was I was sick, but I got really sick. Um, and then somewhere between Thanksgiving and December the 1st of 1977, it was over. It was over. And I remember sitting in the apartment, and Casey had gone to work, and I'm sitting in this chair, and I won't go through all the convolutions that, that I'd gone through at that time to try to make myself hang on to, to this little tenuous string of life and decency and values, but, but I mean, I'd stomped all over every one of them. I had lied, I was, and I was tired. I was just tired. Y'all, when my granddaddy lived out in a little old farm in western Kentucky, 
I'd go out there in the summer and work with him. And when I was a little boy, I just used to go out there and just go around and run behind him. He rode the back of an old mule's butt with a with a one whole, one uh, disc plow, and he'd ride that old mule. And the mule was lightning, and I'd grab a clod and I'd hit old lightning in the butt, and he'd kick. Pop Ray said, "Burns back, don't do that." We keep going. I'd get another clod and I'd hit the old lightning in the butt and he'd kick. He'd go, Burns back, don't do that. About the third time I hit that mule in the butt. Papa stopped, and he said, Burns Mac, go get me a switch. I said, what you going to do, Papa? Hell, I knew what he was going to do after the first time. I knew what he was going to do. <laughs> I said, what you going to do, Papa? I'm going to give you an ass whipping. So I'd go over and get the switch. He just So I was at that point in my drinking where I'd had my last ass whipping. And the question each of you, including me, has to ask each day, have I had my last ass whipping? And when you've had it, you'll know it. And if you're not sure, just keep coming back and you'll figure it out. But for those of us who've had our last ass whipping, we praise God because we don't ever have to wonder anymore. I was powerless over alcohol, yeah, because I couldn't quit drinking, but I was even more powerless because I couldn't get it to work. I couldn't drink enough whiskey to get drunk. I could just stop the DTs. And that morning when Casey left, it was over. It was over. And I sat in that chair and I said, God, you've got to help me. And I knew immediately what I had to do and the peace was incredible. I walked in my bedroom, got my 12-gauge shotgun and put it in my mouth and I was out of here. And, and, and the peace was incredible because I knew I was going to heaven. I knew God would be there for me. And this place down here was just too big for me. I wanted out, and I was ready to go. I sat on the side of that bed with that shotgun in my mouth, and I'm sure I didn't say it, thought it, because how do you talk with a shotgun and barrel in your mouth? But I remember thinking or saying, God, give me a reason to stay because I'm coming if you don't give me a reason. And I thought, my mom and dad will be better off without me. Casey will be better off without me. My patients will be better off without me. And I got to my children. They were little children. I was not a Norman Rockwell father, but I knew about Norman Rockwell fathers, and I'd been in pra practice eight years, and I'd seen a number of adults come in to talk to me who were still scarred by a suicide in their family and their constant obsession, what could I have done different? What did I do to cause it? They had done nothing, but they were just absolutely impaled on what could I have done different. And I knew if I pulled that trigger that my babies would spend probably the rest of their life wondering what they had done to cause Daddy to do that. And I took that shotgun out of my mouth. Now, let me, let me tell you about this. Suicide is complete self-absorption. That is not a pejorative term. Self-absorption means that I believe I'm the only answer. That I believe I'm the only answer. Yes, I knew God. But I couldn't bring God into my heart. No, I couldn't bring God into changing my actions. I didn't know how. I did not know how. And at that moment of complete self-absorption where I'm in charge of all decisions, I thought of another human being, my children. For those of you who don't know it, what is our primary purpose? Right out of the eighth and ninth step, we're here to fit ourselves to be of maximum service to God and our fellow man. You want to know why you're here? 
That's exactly why you're here. I've alluded to it earlier. I bring it up again. Because at that moment of complete self-absorption, I was led to think about somebody else. Now, you make the choice for yourself if you believe God intervened in my life at that moment. I don't have to make the choice. I know. You ask me to explain it, I don't have to. I know. The seminal message of not me, but fitting myself, not to be of maximum service, to fit myself to be of maximum service, to do the drill to know the message, to carry the solution, not the disease. Put the gun down and the terror came back and I was just absolutely overwhelmed. Called a good friend of mine that night. He met me the next morning, a psychiatrist, and the first guy of my understanding was five foot eight, a psychiatrist, wore glasses and stuttered. A psychiatrist that stutters is a little hard to comprehend, isn't it? But that was it. And he looked at me and he said, you've got to go in the hospital. And I looked out at Our Lady of Peace, which was right there beside his office. I said, David, I've been in there so many times and it never works. But here it came. I will do anything you tell me to do. Complete surrender. It doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to see God walk in the back of that, of that door there. Maybe it will happen. Maybe it'll still happen for me someday. But what I know for sure is I've surrendered to a number of angels along this path to my spiritual awakening. And he was the first one. And I said, I will do anything you tell me to do. I became teachable. He said, you don't go in there. I'll send you somewhere else. He sent me to New York. I was there for three months. I'm sorry, I was there for a month, transferred to an alcohol treatment center in Atlanta. Was there for almost three months and came home and got into AA. Still go to four meetings a week, love them. Love the people who are there, love the messages we're sharing, loving the experience that we're having. When I walked into AA in 1978 in Louisville, Kentucky, it was the best of times for uh, AA in Louisville, and it was the worst of times. In the part of AA that I grew up in, in the east end of Jefferson County in Louisville, and Bob and Juanita weren't on that side of town. And this may not be their story, but it sure as hell is mine. It was the best of times because the fellowship was truly indescribably wonderful. There were about six of us that joined at the hips, and we followed each other along like little pygmy elephants. One peed, we all peed. One sitting, we all sat. I mean, it, it wasn't this come 30 minutes early and stay 30 minutes late. It was 24-7. We lived this program. I don't see that much in Louisville anymore, but I'll tell you, it was there for me for almost 10 years. And I am eternally grateful because I learned how to trust and I learned how to share. Now, it was the worst of times for AA because we never talked about the book and we never talked about the steps. The marching orders that I uh, got sober in were don't drink, go to meetings, get a sponsor, tell him what's wrong with you, he'll tell you what to do, then you do it, and then you go help a drunk. Left out that whole muddle middle, didn't it? And for 10 years... I was a lethal weapon for God all over Jefferson County saving drugs. Here he comes, drink a beer, he's going to put your ass in treatment anyway. I mean, I was everywhere. They called that little segment of AA Raleigh's Raiders. And anybody who had any sense didn't come to us very long. Even the ones we took to treatment came back and said, Woo, I'm getting the hell out of here, you know, and they did. But we thought we had it, and y'all didn't. Now, we never thought of y'all, but you know what I'm talking about. We thought we had it. And they didn't, because it wasn't done our way. At 10 years, in, I lived the first 10 years on a three and a third step. 
first step, second step, third step, and a third of the twelfth step. Now, I didn't even know those were the first three steps, but they were, it whipped my butt. My life was unmanageable. And I got to tell you, it took a power greater than me, and I surrendered to it, and it was my sponsor, and he was a sick son of a bitch. I mean, that's exactly what he was. And I got to tell you, he was the greatest angel God ever sent me. I don't mean he was a tough sponsor. I'm not impressed by somebody telling me they got a tough sponsor. I look at him and say, are you crazy? What the hell you got a tough sponsor? Why don't you just let me slap hell out of you about three times? Then you'll feel real good about it, you know? I mean, if you want pain, I can give it to you. Ain't no problem. Hell, I can give you a few drugs. It'll make you puke all day long if you want to do that. But now this guy was sick, but he was my angel. And there have been angels all along, and he was the angel that God gave me. And the reason is this man taught me obedience. And that's a tough thing for me to learn. And he taught me obedience. At 10 years in this program, I made some of the most self-centered decisions that anybody on the face of God's earth can make. And just sat and cried so bewildered. Not thinking about drinking. That whipped me so bad, I virtually never thought about drinking and drugging since that time. And I don't mean I don't ever down in playing golf or tennis. I don't think I'd like to have a cold beer and then think, well, why me, God? Why can't I have a cold beer? Why don't you have a seven up? Oh, that's not the same. You know. But the hell it isn't. Hell it isn't. It's just not going to make me feel the same 30 minutes later. But you know, it's the same. At 10 years in this program, I had an affair. Now, I have the permission to talk about this, so I'm not going way outside of bounds. And if this is too tough for you, you can get up and leave or whatever you want to do. Uh, but I got to tell you, heroes in this program deserve to be heroes, and I think to some people I am. That's because I've never failed to share anything that is appropriate that will take to you the message that we are not perfect. Now, that affairs don't happen in AA any more than drinking just happens. The thinking creates a whole milieu of stuff until we can justify what we want to do. Whatever it may be. You referred to it last night. This thinking is here. The drink may be on Saturday night, but it started six months before. The affair may occur on Tuesday afternoon, but it started six months or a year before. And the way it started in me is when Casey and I came together, we had a perfect relationship. She took care of me. I took care of her. Everything was fine. She went to Alnon for six years. Then she heard her story. She switched to AA. Two years into AA, she came to me and she said, Burns Mack, I've never loved you more, but I want to go to college. I want to go to my own meetings because she went with me. She was hooked right here on my hip. We went to open meeting. I want to go to college. I want to go to my own meetings. I want to go into therapy. And I said, that's wonderful. What I really thought and didn't know was, you're leaving me. She broke the script. Because when, when I was at home, I, my whole relationship with women was formulated at that time. You treat them perfectly, and they'll take care of you and make you feel special. You treat them perfectly, they'll take care of you and make you feel special. And that was always my relationship with women, and I didn't know it. Now, how many sane women are going to buy that deal for very long? I'll treat you perfectly, Marlene, and you take care of me and make me feel special. Right? Well, hell, the sick ones stayed with me for a long time. The ones that were sane got the hell out after about six months, if they could last that long. You know, that's called conditional love. And all of a sudden, Casey has broke the script. That's why therapy is... And very rarely is therapy not a better, not a good method for us to follow if we've got a therapist that knows AA, if we've got a therapist who has probably been in AA and recognizes the only solution to our problems, at least to mine, is a 12-step solution. 
But the therapy, still, I see a therapist frequently today. In addition to my sponsor, my home group, four meetings a week, doing the steps, the whole drill. This therapist helps me realize where the bullets are coming from. And AA brings me God to put the Band-Aid on till it heals. And then I don't have to do that again, or at least I see the bullet coming. But anybody who disparages therapy needs to disparage bad therapy, not therapy. Not therapy. And not everybody needs it. But goofballs like me, it has always helped. I've been in more therapy than most of you will ever have cars, for God's sake. And I tell you, with somebody like me, it, all, it takes it all. Because I'm not right. I'm just not right. I mean, I really have a certifiable mental illness. And it's not alcoholism, unless you want to consider what we have as part of it, and that may be true. But I'm not right. I'm very definitely not right. I mean, with you people, I'm closer to right than I've ever been, but I'm not right. And you ask me to define that, I'll give you examples of my behavior, which means nobody who's right would do that shit, you know? I'm talking about in sobriety. In sobriety, you think if he's got sense enough to start a car and get in the right restroom, he wouldn't do that, you know? So we don't disparage therapy, but where the bullets are coming from. And AA is the solution to the bullets. So I, about that time when Casey started doing all that, uh, in our practice, we each had a nurse. And nurses take care of doctors and make them feel special. Now, not the new nurses. They ain't buying that deal anymore. <laughs> but the old nurses bought that. The old nurses wore little cute little hats and dressed in lovely white outfits. God, I love those white outfits. I just love them. I finally decided I became a doctor because I either wanted to do pelvics or see those pretty white outfits. I'm not, whatever it was. Sorry, I mean, y'all want me to tell the truth. I mean, I'll never be able to go back to Louisville again. No, it's okay, it doesn't matter. They've known this for a long time. But uh, Kathy, been there for two years with me, was divorced, one of the sweetest people in the world. She still is. She's married now, and I praise God she did. Uh, but uh, started having an affair with her. Uh, I had it for about two or three months. It took me about five years to ever deal with that, but for about two or three months. I remember sitting there thinking, I love Casey and I love Kathy, and uh, I've got, what I've got to do is convince these two women that we all three can live together successfully. <laughs> and I believed it. I mean, I loved them both. And I was 52 years old and been in this program 10 years, but with no steps and no big book. I went to tell my sponsor about this deal and told him, and he said, don't do that anymore. So I left not to do it anymore, and he called my wife and told her. Now, I tell you that story because, first of all, we shouldn't deify sponsors. Sponsors are drunks. I wouldn't be without a sponsor. I've had three in 24 years, and I wouldn't even consider being without one. But we deify them. Sponsors are not God. And when I start working with a newcomer, I say, what I need to let you know is that I'm an angel for this period of time, and I'll share all my experience, strength, and hope, but if you're going to try to make me God, you just pick the wrong person. I can't walk on water unless somebody shows me where the stumps are. I mean, it's just that simple. <laughs> but I need to let them know that, because we have, we have still trying to deify sponsors. And, and uh, Don last night... The, the, the caliber of sponsorship just on the basis of pure numbers is not the same as it was 24 years ago or it's not the same as it was 41 or 38 years ago. The pure numbers 
are overpowering us. We got people with two and a half, two years of sobriety sponsoring people. Somebody asked me, is that wrong? I said, hell, man, it's just a fact. Well, what should a sponsor be? Well, a sponsor should never sponsor unless they've done the steps. They should never sponsor unless, unless they're going to meeting. They should never sponsor unless they've got a sponsor. We can all drive the car. When should I work with a newcomer? As soon as you can get your damn car started and get down to the treatment center, put them in the damn car and take them to the meeting. But don't try to tell them you know how to work the program if you haven't done your steps. For God's sakes, man, you just there to carry him in the car. You just there to say, I don't know quite how it works, but I haven't had a drink today. Good enough for me. That just suits the hell out of me. I'm just, I can, whatever you're doing and you just haven't had a drink, I'll go with you. You're okay. <laughs> but first of all, I tell this story because I had deified my sponsor. Part of the thing I'd done with men all my life was deify men. The other thing was, is about that time when I'm sitting there with nobody left to tell me what to do, because this man who had told me what to do for years is gone. And about that time, don't leave before the miracle happens. About that time, a little pigeon of mine walked up with eight tapes and said, listen to these tapes and see if they're any good. And they were Joe and Charlie's tapes, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And as I listened to those tapes, I just sat and cried because God had delivered me the message of what this program can be. I had 11 copies made and 12 of us studied that book in a little circle for the next year, sitting there with our little book and that, those tapes, listening to those tapes and reading that book. And the whole lives of those 12 men changed. And frankly, pretty much the whole pattern of Alcoholics Anonymous began to change in the east end of Jefferson County. Jefferson County is divided into two distinct areas, and, and a, ta a road seems to divide it. There's a southeast section, west section, or southwest and west and east. And... Virtually 100% of all the meetings, or at least 95 of them, east of the, uh, that road are all speaker meetings. Virtually most of them on the other side of that road are all speaker meetings. And that's the way it works. And Jack Sullivan was my sponsor for seven years. He used to ride my ass because I wouldn't go to speaker meetings. I used to ride his ass because he wouldn't go to discussion meetings. And we finally decided it was time to get off each other's ass and just enjoy the ride. So we finally did that. But that's the way it was in Jefferson County. Now, as we studied those tapes, I began to see what this whole deal was about. This deal was about, this is a sick man. Y'all know where this is. This is the bridge between third and fourth column. If you don't know that, then you need to get a sponsor who will take you there. And if they can't, y'all both need to get another sponsor. But that spiritual bridge between the third and fourth column, this is a sick man. How can I help him take away my anger? Thy will be done. It's not what he did to me. It's what I can do for him. It's not what he did to me. It's what I can do for him. The major spiritual leap that cannot be done without the power, grace, and love of God Almighty in my life. That's an impossible journey to love rather than hate, to bring love rather than to bring resentment and response. Can that move be made without God? Not for me. And I told that man I had to leave and made my amends to him because I had things I needed to make my amends for. But if, I ever, if you ever need me, let me know and I'll help you. He said, get out of my house. And I left, and five years later, at the death of one of those 11 men, one of those 11 men, he was there because that was part of that group that grew up together. And as I walked out, I hugged him and I said, Jim, I will always love you and nobody can ever take away what God gave me with you for, 12 years, for, for 10 years. And he looked at me, he's 20 years older than me, big man, came and sat in my chair in my office, and I was eight years sober when my mama died, and rocked me in that chair, because my mama died, and rocked me in that chair. 
and tears were streaming down his face. And he said, Burns, can I see you tomorrow? I'm sick. I said, see you in the morning at 8 o'clock. Brought him in. By 9 o'clock, I diagnosed significant coronary artery disease. By 1 o'clock, we had him in the hospital. And by the next day, he was catheterized, and they did coronary artery bypass, and God had used me to save his life because we started back here. If you ever need me, let me know. I left the spiritual door open in spite of what he had done to me. Oh, no. He was the great angel and led me through this whole process to be free. Part of it he never knew, and part of it he did. When I got in this book, I found that our problem is not alcohol. Our problem is our mind. And as Don said last night, alcohol was the solution to my problem. Don't you ever doubt it. When I drank, it stopped my problem. When people say my problem's me, I don't I understand that. My problem is my mind. It's the way I think. And Wilson believed this so much he called it a peculiar mental twist. It's the thinking that precedes the drinking. Have you ever asked yourself, if you've ever even heard of it, and if you have, you ever ask yourself what the peculiar mental twist is? Just how does that work? Oh, sure, it's that final thinking that says I can drink when that means to die. And the rationalization and justification to believe I can do it and not die. This disease is 100% fatal. If you factor in suicide, homicides, and trauma, it's 100% fatal in addition to the physical problems. In addition to the physical problems. Damn, I don't know where I got on that. Mm. Where am I? Oh, that's good. <laughs> now, peculiar mental twist. Thanks, Camille. Peculiar mental twist. Am I really in Fort Wayne? <laughs> oh, shit. I'm supposed to be in Atlanta. <laughs> Tell me it's Saturday. <laughs> peculiar mental twist. So what is the peculiar mental twist? Well, I'll tell you what it means to me. And the closest thing the book comes to describing it is in the story of Jim. When you read through the story of Jim, which is a great story to teach from and to learn from. Peculiar mental twist for Burns Brady. First part, bigger than the rules. Bigger than the rules. I think I can play bigger than the rules. Not just in AA, but in my life. I've got nine points on my driver's license. Three more points and I walk. I ask myself, why do I have nine points on my driver's license? Well, you idiots, because you go 95 miles an hour and 65 miles an hour speed zone. Oh, I know that, but why do I do it? Well, I do it because I'm stupid. No, I got all kinds of degrees that says I'm not stupid. Then I do it because I'm crazy. No, I got all kinds of discharge summaries that says I'm not crazy. <laughs> Then why do I do it? I do it because I'm Burns Brady. Bigger than the rule. They don't make handicapped parking areas to keep me out. They make them so I can park there. They don't make, they don't make speed limits for me to abide by. They don't even make the big book for me to follow like everybody else. How does this apply to the, to the program? If I get up in the morning and if I follow the directions, if I follow the rules and start my day with the 11th step, Start my day with the third step and the seventh step. Live my day with the tenth step and close my day with the eleventh step. Just like it's written. It's a great day. It may not go as well as I like, but it's a great day. Do I do it every day? Oh, no. Of course not. I get up some mornings, I'm running behind, and I sit there and, dear God, please wreck my thing, keep my thoughts I run out there and somebody honks the horn, and I go, screw you! <laughs> Yeah, 
and then I'll follow them five exits to make sure they got the message. Yeah. Follow them off the goddamn expressway, down to the bottom, yeah. go by them. <laughs> with a big, large vanity, driver's, with big, large license plate, BMB, like they can't figure out who in the hell that is. Or if they don't know who it is, they can call the police and whip my ass. I mean, because I'm there giving them this, you know, carrying my gun, showing them all my private parts, whatever it takes to make sure they get it. Oh, yeah. It's incredible. What did Wilson call the What did Wilson call bigger than the rules? He called it self-centeredness. Second part of the peculiar mental twist, victimization. Victimization. You're my problem. The whole world's my problem. Started out by being born poor. Had to caddy rather than belong at the country club. Had to work my way through college and medical school. Had to stay married to that rich bitch for 17 years. All the way down the line. I got an, when I had my heart attack in 94 and almost died for two years, here I was. I'll never be the same. Next it'll be my prostate. Then I'll never be able to have an erection. And there it'll be. And finally my support system said, Man, you're a load. You are a frigging load. Get over it for God's sake. They don't understand. <laughs> I mean, there it is. I mean, the same drill, uh, victimization. What did we, I, I talked in the Alan Conference in Tulsa about three or four years ago. I'm the 8 o'clock Saturday morning talker, and I'm sitting down there, and all my drunk friends meet me, and we go through this little buffet thing. It's an interesting buffet. They put the plate down. They put all the setups, and you take the plate, go in, get your food, and come back and sit down. I got my food, came back, sit down. I, they let me go through first because I was a speaker, and I sit down, and all my setups are gone. I thought, why'd that woman take my setups away? Why'd she do that? So I got up in my best spiritual tone and attitude to go over and ask her if she could bring me more. Took two steps and realized I'd sit down at the wrong damn table. <laughs> but my first thought is, they're going to screw me. Starting with the IRS down, they're going to screw me. I mean, it's as innate in me as breathing. They're going to screw me. Wilson called that resentment and self-pity it's interesting the first part the first thing that we ask god to direct our thinking on in the morning is dear god self-pity interesting that's not a pejorative term it's victimization you are my problem next part of the peculiar mental twist is square peg round hole bigger hammer syndrome if the square peg won't fit in a round hole just beat hell out of it screw it in there make that sob fit just like that Hell, that's the second half of the first step, isn't it? I'm going to control my life because, number one, I'm afraid I won't get what I want. Twelve and twelve, won't get what I want or I'll lose what I got. That means I don't trust God. And let me tell you, this is the seminal issue every morning for Burns Brady, it will be for you, is to sit out in the morning and for each of us to decide, is our life unmanageable? Is it? To ask ourselves, is God in charge or am I in charge? Now, let me tell you, a number of us in this room will drink again. It's absolutely a percentage. And not a one of us will drink again because we don't believe we're powerless over alcohol. If you're in an AA meeting, you know damn well you're powerless over alcohol. you got the proof behind it. But we will drink again because we do not believe our life is unmanageable. We'll keep going through spouses. We'll keep going through jobs. We'll keep going through towns. We will be working to cram the square peg in the round hole. So the issue I have to decide is, do I trust God? And there are mornings when I sit there and it's a tough deal. 
God, I know you're there, but by God, you must be counting sparrows or you're asleep. I don't know what the hell you're doing, but you ain't paying a hell of a lot of attention to me. And I'm sitting there, and there's some mornings, I, and I mean, I'm not talking about six years ago. I'm talking about this week. <laughs> and I'm sitting there consciously saying, where are you? As we've said before, I'm giving you everything I've got. I've had three angioplasties in a stent last May. I had a pacemaker put on my heart last December. Somebody said, how's it doing? I said, they need to put a pacemaker on my ass. That's what's dragging to have this thing on my heart. You know? But I'm sitting there thinking, man, I'm doing the best I can do for you, and you're out there somewhere. God knows where. You don't even know where. And man, I mean, it just drips off of me because I do not trust God. And one day at a time, one minute at a time, one event at a time, I can focus on God and bring God in. And it's better than it's ever been, but it ain't perfect. And it isn't every minute of every day. What did he call that? Fear and control. So we got self-centeredness, resentment, self-pity, fear and control. And those are bigger than the rules, victimization, and square peg, round hole, bigger hammer syndrome. Your life will never be the same after hearing this talk. And I pray to God it won't be. Because all of you are thinking, you'll think, that's what that crazy man said. Is, I'm bigger than the rules. Victimization. When you start blaming your wife or your kid or your job, or your boss, right on down the line, and working your ass off to keep the tank full, you know? I mean, that's exactly what it is. What is the solution for this peculiar mental twist? For me, it's spirituality. And let me take the smoke, mirrors, and magic out of you for spirituality. Having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. It isn't rocket science. Now, some of us pseudo-rocket scientists like me will convolute that son of a gun till hell freezes over. The, problem, the, the beauty of this program is it will work for the man with the, either the real or the supposedly high IQ and the man who has no IQ. It just takes longer for us pseudo-rocket scientists to get it because we'll convolute a freight train. I mean, a one-car parade is in danger of my screwing it up on any day of the week. <laughs> Having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. Bill Wilson, someone asked him, what part of this program is spiritual? He said, it is spiritual. And spirituality is humility and responsibility. Humility and responsibility. Write it, put it on your mirror. Humility and responsibility. The power is God's. The responsibility is mine. To learn the rules and play by them. To learn the rules and play by them. I don't have the power. God can feed me, but he gave me a knife and fork. God can feed me, but he gave me a knife and fork. His power, my job. The discernment between when I quit doing my job and turn it over to God is the seminal issue in AA on a daily basis. And with sponsors, a home group, constant meetings, a support group, telling my message wherever somebody wants to hear it, that helps me know when to quit and when to start. His power, my job. And the job is well delineated. Follow the steps. I'm going to give you a spiritual triangle. You want to know if your life is balanced? Here's a base. Here's a triangle on its point, perfectly balanced on that base. This is the AA spiritual triangle of a balanced spiritual life. At this corner of that triangle is sponsor. At this corner is meetings. At this corner is the big book. Perfectly balanced on a base of honesty and today. If your life is screwed up, look at your spiritual triangle and see where it's tilted.
Have you talked to your sponsor? Just like the 11th step says at the end of the day. Is there somebody I need to talk to? Have I gone to my meetings? Have I cut back? Am I still going to my meetings? Am I doing the 11th, 3rd, 7th, 10th, and 11th to run this day, which leads me to all the others? Have I been honest, and am I staying in the day? And I'll guarantee you, it works for me, and it'll work for you to find out where you screwed up your spiritual life. It's not a balance between the country club or normal people and AA meetings and us. Oh, no. That will come out in the wash. It's keeping balance spiritually as the result, not a, the result of these steps. That's the spiritual solution. You've been patient. I've given you pretty much everything I've got. I've not left much here. I will close by telling you about my family. I have two children in AA. I have a daughter, 41, who's been in AA either 20 or 21 years. And I have a son, 35, who's been in AA either 17 or 18 years. Both of these kids were screaming alcoholics and drug addicts in their early teens. Their mother had, had poisoned their minds against me. I had no access to them. But I, God brought me to them when they needed to be brought, when I needed to be brought. And my children will tell you that I was the single greatest influence in their life drinking, and I'm the single greatest influence in their life sober, certainly their early sobriety, because they saw Daddy could do it. They saw Daddy could do it. Daddy changed. As Sissy said one time when they asked her, what is the main reason you know your daddy's changed? She said, he comes and picks us up on time. He comes and picks us up on time. Out of the mouths of babes. They were babes. Now they're adults and they're strong adults. And Camille knows this. They are strong adults in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And their daddy was the mirror. What a joy. My mama died in 1978. She died of breast cancer. She died eight months after I got sober. I adored my mother, and I used to drive down every week and talk to mother. I basically, we hugged each other, and she left clean. My mother and I have been like that forever, and we're still like that. And she left, and it was clean. Clean it up. You can go to the foot of the grave, and, you can, and other things will be revealed to you, and you'll go there, as I do many times, and say to Mama, Mama, I forgot to tell you I was sorry for this, or Mama, I love you for this. But boy, I mean, we sat there, and in that week's time, even though there were no steps, there was the hugging and the loving and the honesty. My daddy's like me. He's female. He's male-oriented and female-dominated. And my daddy, within a year, married. Praise God, he married a woman who was a dear friend of mother and daddy's, and she was so instrumental in his life. I desperately tried to get my daddy's approval. I've done, I don't know how many fifth steps with those men in, in the healing place. And the common denominator for that population was they were all drinking before they were 10. They were all sexually molested as children. I don't know what the sexual molestation means except for trauma issues and except for trust issues. But I do, do know what the drinking before age 10 will do. And these men all wanted a significant male in their life to love and to tell them it was okay. And so did I. And my daddy was one of the lovingest, gentlest men I've ever seen. He never hugged me. He never told me he loved me. He was just always there. When I got in trouble, daddy appeared very quietly. And it was taken care of inappropriately. And I wanted daddy to say, Burns Mac, it's okay. Well, daddy didn't work that way. And what I found out from, from um, one of his brothers is my daddy was in severe shame that he thought he had caused my alcoholism. My daddy never drank. I never saw that. But he thought I had caused that he had caused it. And so Daddy was just in that kind of shame. He couldn't say anything about it because I'd say, Daddy, I need to talk to you, Burns Mac. I love you. No, he'd say, Burns Mac, I don't want to talk about that. Please. 
Daddy began to lose his mind about two years after he got married. And the next 10 years of my daddy's life were a gradual concretizing of his mind. They called it Alzheimer's, but it wasn't. It was senile psychosis or arteriosclerotic head vessel disease, but it works like Alzheimer's for all practical purposes. Daddy forgot who I was. He forgot who my brother was. He forgot who my mother was. Peggy and I had to put him in a nursing home because it was in his best interest, his health. We prayed, we put him there. That's a decision many of you have to make. You make your own. But we worked spiritually to decide what was best for Daddy. I'd drive down pretty much every weekend to see Daddy. And when I drive down, remember, I'm 14, 14 years sober. I've made my amends to Casey. I've made my amends to Kathy. I'm now working a 12-step program. Casey and I had gone in. She's working a 12-step program. We went into therapy, and our marriage has some scars today. But it's a, an adult marriage based on love and forgiveness, not smoke, mirrors, and magic. Is the passion there? Yes. Is it sexual? Sometimes. But the love and the passion is there. And this is what's going on in my life. It is opening up for a grown-up with 14, 15 years of sobriety. He's basically about six or seven years old in this program. And I'm driving down to see my daddy, and as I pull up next to the, to the nursing home, I say, God, please take away my pain. Please take away my pain. I go in, work with daddy. It doesn't work. Get back in the car, drive home, crying all the way. This one Sunday, I drive down, I park the car, and I'm sitting there, and I, don't, I, I know today where it came from. I just know it came. I said, dear God, let me be for my daddy what you want me to be. And I walked in, Daddy's in a wheelchair, and he thought I was his, his brother, Uncle Buster. And I said, Hal, I didn't call him Daddy, that confused him. I said, Hal, can I help you? He said, yeah, Buster, would you shave me? So I shaved my Daddy. I said, would you like some lunch? He said, I believe I would. And I rolled him out in his wheelchair and fed him because he was too weak to feed himself. Peggy came in and sat there, and she and I got to talking. Mother and I used to do this all the time. Daddy would just sit quietly and watch Mother and me talk. He loved it when Mother and I would talk like that. He would just sit and watch. Today I know that. I watch Casey talk, talk to my grandchildren, and I just love it. I just sit there. I think, my God, I'm like my daddy. And I just sit there and watch. So I said, would you like to go out on the porch? He said, I believe I would. So I rolled him out on the porch, and Peggy and I get to talking. Daddy's sitting there looking. He raises up in his chair. He said, son, today you're just like the little boy your mother and I raised. I love you very much. Thank you for coming to see me. Ten seconds later, he didn't know me, and he never did again. We buried him in 1992. I can explain both miracles. I can explain the miracle medically of why my daddy's memory came back for that 10 seconds. And it was some years before I was able to be real clear. I can explain it spiritually because it's self-centered, self-absorbed, but willing to try and willing to be taught alcoholic reached the point to where I could say in the most spiritual way and in the most spiritual commitment, let me be for my daddy what you want me to be. And that's the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous. Never doubt it. Let each of us carry it with us in our souls and in our hearts and in our deliveries with the passion and commitment that I've got right now to touch the person next to us and say, dear God, what can I be for this person? Not just in AA, but in the Kroger checkout line, in the supermarket, in the filling station. To sit there and say, what can I be for this person? Is it easy? Hell no. Is it doable? Hell yes. I love you very much. Thank you for letting me come.